Hello and welcome to Secondary Rules for the weekend of Saturday, the 22nd of October. It's the Trust and Quartered edition. I'm Ryan Goss. And I'm Joshua Neal. And we're brought to you, as always, by the ANU Law School. We've got new episodes out every Saturday this semester. Please follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As regular listeners will know, every week on Secondary Rules, we pick something from my public law class this week. We pick something from Joshua's legal theory class this week and we talk them through, see what we can learn about law and maybe about the world beyond the law. As always, this week, you'll be able to find a few links for some further reading in our show notes. You'll also find in the show notes this week, Joshua, a link to a quick four-question survey. And we're asking uh, for anyone who's keen, please click on the link. Tell us a little bit about what you've liked about the podcast and uh, where you are and what you are listening to us for. And we will take that into account as we think about a possible future season, Joshua. Yes, and tell us what you would like it to be in the second season. That's right. We can't promise we will, uh, <laughs> we will meet all demands and requests, but we will, uh, we will take everything on board. We're keen to hear from you. So please take the time. Pause the show now. <laughs> click, click on the survey link. It's only four quick questions. And then come back and rejoin us. Assuming that you have now completed the survey. We can, we can, we, that's the only, that's a rational inference we can draw. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get started with today's show. This week in our first segment, we will look at dual citizenship and think a little about this week's developments in the ongoing decline and fall of the British Empire, of which I, of course, feel very sad about. <laughs> After the break, in our second segment, we will be talking about torture and terror. But first, let's kick off with dual citizenship. So, Ryan, you are a dual citizen, aren't you? <laughs> I am, Joshua. I'm Where a- does your true loyalty lie? Well, it's all very suspicious. I'm not going to answer that question, but my, my, I have an Australian citizenship and also citizenship of the Republic of Ireland through my late grandmother. Um, Joshua, are you, are you a dual citizen? Well, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> this is even more suspicious. So you're refusing to, to comment on that. Um, it's, it's an interesting state, I think, the state of being a dual citizen and, and the, uh, the, the complications and opportunities it brings, I suppose. And we spoke about at least, we've spoken about this a few times in, in public law this semester, but we, we did touch on it this week when we thought about the Alexander case that was decided by the High Court a little bit earlier this year. So the case that you're referring to is the Alexander case, decided in June 2022, so just a few months ago, really. What are the facts of uh, Alexander? So this is a case about uh, Dalil Alexander, and Dalil Alexander was born in Australia, an Australian citizen. He was also a Turkish citizen. Uh, and in 2013, uh, Mr. Alexander travelled to Turkey, and then at some point after that travelled into uh, Syria, uh, and uh, I think all the intelligence reports suggest and the High Court judgment suggests became involved in the activities of ISIS or ISIL or uh, uh, various organisations around that in Syria at a time when that was uh, capable of being seen as contrary to Australian law, and he was involved in those sort of terrorist or suspected terrorist activities in Syria as part of that organisation. And so what happened then uh, is that under the relevant citizenship law, as a dual citizen at the time, he could have his Australian citizenship stripped from him. He could be denationalised. And that happened through the minister, the Home Affairs Minister here in Australia, reaching a conclusion that he'd engaged in certain conduct that was contrary to the legislation. 
and reaching a determination that his Australian citizenship had been taken away from him, or was, was to be taken away from him. Uh, Mr Alexander, as far as we know, at least at the time of the High Court judgment, remains in a Syrian government prison and has not been able to be contacted for some time by his family or his Australian lawyers. So if, if, if his citizenship was stripped pursuant to this legislative scheme, it was stripped by a minister in an exercise of executive power, yeah, so is that, is that the right way to think about the, legislat the legislative scheme as it then was? Yeah, that's right. The, the minister was, uh, under this uh, element of the citizenship legislation, was the only authority. There was no decision of an Australian court, for example, that Mr Alexander had, um, had committed an offence and was convicted of an offence. Um, it was the minister reaching this decision. And, and that focus on the ability of a minister to, under the legislation, strip someone's citizenship was one of the two major issues in the, in the case of Dilwell Alexander. The other one, which we won't think about so much today, was about the aliens' power and, and how the aliens' power works. Really interesting debate between the different judges, issues for the future, but we'll, we'll leave that to one side for, for today at least. So there is no constitutional prohibition on citizenship stripping per se. The question before the High Court in the Alexander case was, who could do the citizenship stripping? Is it and a power that is to be exercised by the judiciary exclusively, or is it a power that could be exercised by the executive? Yeah, that's right. Well, at least insofar as Mr. Alexander's case is concerned, that's right. And and the concern was, if we sharpen it up, I suppose, the concern could be said to be, was stripping his Australian citizenship an act of punishment of a particular sort such that if it was to be done by anyone, it had to be done by the judiciary. So if we classify it as punishment, punishment is a necessary part of the judicial function. And if it is a necessary part of the judicial function, it is reserved to the, the judiciary in chapter three. And therefore, the legislative scheme, which tries to give the minister the power to strip someone of their citizenship would be unconstitutional. Not because citizenship stripping is unconstitutional per se, but it was the, the power is reposed in the wrong branch of government. Yes, and, and in that sense, this, is a, this judgment picks up very much on a judgment that some of our um, alumni listeners will remember from their own studies of Chu Kang Lim, a 1992 decision of the High Court, um, which for our purposes, we can say, said as, as a general proposition, plenty of exceptions to it, but as a general proposition, um, det executive detention of citizens in custody uh, was punitive and was something that could only be, as a general proposition, done by the courts as a function of the judgment and punishment of, of criminal guilt. And so one of the questions in, in Alexander, well, the big question was, well, does that Chu Kang Lim principle, does that only talk about detention and detention as a form of punishment, as a sort of a paradigmatic form of punishment, or, or might it apply to other forms of punishment too? And, and was citizenship stripping a relevant form of punishment for that purpose? So what is a punishment? So if citizenship stripping is a form of punishment, it is reserved to the judicial branch of government. To work that out, I mean, how do we even begin this inquiry? How do we think about whether citizenship stripping amounts to a punishment? Well, there are there are different approaches from the different judges, and and there is there are divisions in the court on Dalil Alexander, particularly on the aliens power issue, on the uh, punishment citizenship stripping issue. 
six of the judges at least are in, in broad agreement, I think it's fair to say, with Justice Stewart off to one side. But the judges take different views to figuring out whether or not it's punishment. And, and, and there's some fascinating passages of, of history going back, I think, at least to the 1600s, maybe earlier, of instances over British legal history or English legal history of where uh, exile or what we would now describe as citizenship stripping was used as a form of punishment. And the judges make a point of saying, well, when we, when we think of a paradigmatic example of punishment today, we think of someone languishing in a jail cell perhaps or detention. But there have been plenty of other types of punishment over the years, corporal punishment, capital punishment, exile as punishment. Uh, and some of the judges go back to sort of Roman or Babylonian times even uh, as examples of, of how over the years, even if it's not our most common form of punishment as we think about it today, citizenship stripping or exile has been quite a... a historically often used form of punishment. So the relationship between citizenship stripping and exile is that once we strip you of your citizenship, we can chuck you out of the country. And that is like sending you into exile. We can chuck you out and you can't necessarily come back in, or you certainly can't come back in easily. Uh, and the judges make a, make a point of uh, noting that if, if detention mm -hmm. is punishment in part because it stops you having the freedom to roam with liberty around the country, do it, go about your daily business. Uh, citizenship stripping is, uh, is is at least analogous in the sense that you can't even enter the country to go about your business. In this case, Mr. Alexander was already out of the country, in which case we could bar him from ever coming back. If someone is in the country, the effect of that is banishment. We, take, we strip you of your citizenship and then take you and chuck you out. In which case then, this seems really punitive to me. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, didn't death, the death penalty kills your biological life. Citizenship stripping here kills you in a civic way, right? You lose your civic status in the Australian community, in this political community. There is some analogy, isn't it, between capital punishment and exile. One kills you biologically and the other kills you in a civic way yeah i think i think there's certainly uh, a significant impact on your ability to on on your ability to be part of and present in the community that you call your own or the political community that you call your own or even one of the political communities you call your own for those of us joshua who may or may not be dual citizens um it's certainly a, a serious deal. And, and when you talk about civic death, that's also a term some listeners may know that was used, particularly in the period after the death penalty was abolished in Australia or in the UK, for example. Um, life sentences were then thought of as a form of civic death. They were sort of as thought of as a life sentences in prison as a form of replacement for capital punishment in some situations. And in Roman law, there were two forms of capital punishment, right? Death and exile are both capital Punishments. At least that's what Edelman seems to be saying in his judgment, that we today think of capital punishment as ex execution, as taking of your life, but the Romans thought about it differently. There are two ways we could get rid of you, killing you or throwing you out. Yeah, and you can you can take the uh, High Court judge out of Oxford, but you can't take the Oxford judge <laughs> Oxford out of the High Court judge. But, um, <laughs> as Professor Edelman, he would have uh, he, he took an interest in Roman law at, at Oxford as as. It's a compulsory course um, in, in Oxford law. So I think that's that influence coming through in Justice Edelman's uh, judgment as well. Yeah. And, uh, but, I, but I think I suppose the Roman law here being, coming back to what we were saying before, it's, it's a reminder to, 
to keep our minds open as to the range of things that could be capable of being called punishment, that, that what we think of as punishment in any given you know, limited temporal place in Australia today might, might be too limited when we think about the broader spectrum of what punishment is. But have common law judges ever had the power, the judicial power to send people into exile, to denationalise someone? I mean, here the High Court is claiming that if anyone were to do that, it is them who will be able to do that. No one else but them can do it. Now, is this a power grab or is there a precedent where common law judges exercising judicial power have strip someone of their citizenship or denationalise someone and banish people from the realm? I, I, I don't know, is the honest answer, Joshua. I mean, it, it does bring to mind, and I think Justice Stewart touches on this, the transportation of, of convicts from uh, England and or the United Kingdom and Ireland to Australia in the... And, and not just Australia, but in, especially to Australia in the uh, late 1700s and 1800s that... You know, Justice Stewart attempts to draw a link there, I think, perhaps for a different purpose, but we can see a similarity there. Yeah, but I, I thought the point there was that even there, what the judges did was more like detention in a faraway prison. Yeah. There was no citizenship stripping. There was no denationalization. They remained British subjects. They, instead of British subjects living in the United Kingdom, there were British subjects living in the colony of Tasmania or the colony of New South Wales. On that reading of what was happening, the common law judges were not granted the power to deprive anyone of subjecthood. Well, yes. So, to, so I suppose to pick up on that, I would perhaps re reframe the majority's view here as being um, uh, if, if this is to be done, it is an exclusively judicial function. If, but, if it is to be done, it, it must be done by the courts. But no judges, no common law judges have ever done that, as but far as we know. But, but saying if it is to be done, it must be done by court isn't the same as saying a court can and should do it. And the, can, the court can do it, that is. The well, but, but we may yet get to a, a, a you know, if, if such a case was to come forward, we can, uh, it can, it's easy to imagine arguments saying, well, there might be the possibility for that, but there may be limitations that come into place to stop a court doing it from another part of the constitution or another part of our law. So if there are... We're freestyling a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so in this hypothetical imaginary world, yes. if we were to repose this power in the courts, you are saying that we might be able to find some parts of the constitution that would stop even the courts from doing it. So, for example, uh, I have an honour student at the moment who's writing a thesis on, on the ability of Australians to return to Australia and the you know, what rights might be inferred from the constitution and the idea of... Um, the ideas in the constitution about the ability of Australian citizens to enter Australia. And ah, that is the ability of Australian citizens. But once they are stripped of their citizenship, they are no longer Australian citizens. Well, again, and this begs the question, it gets into the aliens power sort of issue as well. That's right. And, and if it's indeed the case that there are restrictions even on the courts stripping someone of citizenship on other provisions of the constitution, we might end up with a position where citizenship stripping itself is unconstitutional and no one could do it. In Australia, it, it, well, we, we can we can imagine a series of cases that go down that path. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, oh, sorry, you go. It is the case, though, not under the constitution, but under a treaty that we have signed, a convention against statelessness. We can't strip someone of their citizenship if this is the only citizenship that they have, because we can't, under a treaty obligation, not under the Australian yeah. constitution, we can't render someone stateless. Yeah. So it's one of the ways in which 
those of us who may or may not be dual citizens are, are differentiated from Australians who are not dual citizens. Yes, so dual citizens are liable to have their citizenship stripped. At least they are not protected by the they're, Convention Against Statelessness. They're more vulnerable, yeah. And, and, and it brings to mind as well, in, in a very different um, uh, context, one of the other ways in which dual citizens in Australia are disadvantaged is that they cannot, without taking certain actions, uh, it is much harder for them, for example, to run for parliament under Section 44, and we've seen this in, in cases like Canavan and Gallagher uh, in the last few years, and, and long before that, Sykes and Cleary, as some of our uh, alumni listeners will remember. So there are there are pockets of our law and our public law where um, uh, where dual citizens are regarded, certainly, as, as different sorts of citizens than uh, Australians who are, who are solely Australian citizens. Yeah, so we, ha- we have identified at least two um, limitations or, or disadvantages that uh, dual citizens have to endure, that single citizens, so sole citizens, one is the opposite of yeah, yeah. solo citizens. <laughs> <laughs> that solo citizens don't first, it's li- the liability to have one citizenship stripped, that is because that person is not protected by the Convention Against Statelessness, and the other is a limitation on running for parliament. So you, for example, have to choose Either you want to run for parliament or to renounce your Irish citizenship. It's, 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 a, cho- it's, a, it's a choice everyone must face at some point in their life. It's, and, 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 but it also goes to, and the High Court dealt with this in Canavan and Gallagher and engaged with this, you know, that is a, uh, that is a big thing to be thinking about, uh, to, re- to be reflecting on your, the nature of your citizenship and what citizens you may be entitled to. You know, there are some people who are dual, triple, quadruple citizens. Uh, but... So is running for office. So, so people who are in that position, the High Court says, should be turning their mind to this, should be thinking this through carefully and diligently making sure that they rid themselves of any pesky additional citizenships, at least until such time as Section 44 might be amended, as I know some people uh, are arguing for very very strongly. But, but Joshua, I think you, you spoke to me recently about a point of public law that was on a that is on the it's on the citizenship test or on the sample citizenship test on the citizenship test that I may or may not have set for. No one can say whether you've set for it or not. That's right. I, I'm <laughs> Do you want you give our listeners the question that you are agitated by? Now this is question fourteen on the Australian citizenship test uh, sample okay. that is on the website, and listeners should could verify it for themselves by just googling okay. the citizenship test sample. Question fourteen is the following. Now listen carefully, listeners, and because, because you can do the test yourself <laughs> and think about if you are um, sitting for the test, what would your answer be? Which arm of government has the power to interpret and apply laws? A, legislative, B, executive, C, judicial. Pick one. Now, Ryan, if you, if you were to be administered this citizenship test with this question, what would your answer be? Which arm of government has the power to interpret and apply the laws? I think what the questionnaire is getting at is answer C, the judicial branch. But that is plainly wrong. Right? This, is not <laughs> a, this is not even borderline mistake. This is like glaring mistake. It is like... Public law mistake 101. Hello to our listeners at the Department of Home Affairs and the Office of Citizenship or whatever it's called. Tell us why it's wrong, Joshua. Let's think about the executive. Let's think of a a police officer. Then a police officer issues you a fine. 
the police officer is interpreting and applying the Road Transport Act in issuing you the fine. Yeah. And the police officer is part of the executive. Yeah. And same with parliament. When parliament passes an act, they are interpreting the constitution and applying the heads of power to pass an act. So the answer surely is all of the above, A, B, and C. <laughs> now, who should we tell this glaring mistake to? We should, uh, we should send some strongly worded letters, clearly. <laughs> but the, um, speak, speaking of strongly worded letters, we should, we should um, move on briefly to uh, the events that have taken place in the UK over the last week or so, or the last 40-odd days. We're recording on Friday lunchtime, and shortly before uh, our recording, it became clear that Prime Minister Liz Truss would, would be gone, possibly by the next time. Uh, we record an episode or possibly uh, possibly not but certainly she will definitely be gone the only question is who will replace her is it not okay. yeah she has resigned she's, she's re resigned and we'll, we'll get a new Prime Minister maybe Friday UK time next week so we'll certainly get a, a new Prime Minister soon um, and it amidst all the political chaos and the hurly-burly of that I think there are some big questions for those of us who are interested in constitutional democracy and particularly Westminster uh, democracies and systems of responsible government because, and I know you've been thinking about this, Joshua, there's a tension there between who commands the confidence of the lower house of the parliament, in their case, the House of Commons, in our case, uh, the lower house of the House of Representatives of the states, and who gets to choose that person in the party membership. The involvement of party membership. Meaning not members of parliament, but uh, uh, rank and file party members out there around the country, thousands of them who go to their local party fundraisers and mem you know, pay their membership dues. So a conservative member in Swansea now may be called upon to decide who is the leader of the parliamentary conservative party who will then become the prime minister. On this model, the involvement of party members, it's an innovation or if not an aberration from the Westminster system. The Westminster system it's representative democracy, right? It's members of parliament. You elect your member of parliament. The members of parliament will choose who their leader is and whoever can command the confidence of the majority of the members of parliament gets to be prime minister. So this involvement of party members is neither fish nor fowl. It is, it is proving to be a problem, as we have seen in the previous uh, Tory leader election, including the current one. Be, and and, and to, to sharpen it up, there, among the reasons for the problems that Liz Truss has faced, and there are many, we don't have time in, a, in an hour-long podcast to get into them, but among them are that the Conservative members of Parliament, her own members of Parliament, by, did not, a majority of them did not support her. A majority of them supported her competitor, whereas a majority of the rank-and-file members out there in the country supported her. And so that puts her in a, in a difficult position. She's trying to get an agenda through Parliament, but... A majority of her own members aren't necessarily lining up behind her. She faced plenty of other problems, plenty of other self-inflicted problems as well. And uh, one's heart can almost can only uh, go out to her in some respects. But um, uh, this created a particular difficulty. And this innovation is uh, in various forms for the major UK parties. It's now at the national level in Australia for both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. And I think in other, some other Westminster systems, I understand that at least some of the parties, if not all of the major parties in Canada, for example, use a system like this too. But it creates this tension. I think the, the flip side of it, of course, is uh, the Australian equivalents were introduced by Prime Minister Rudd and then Prime Minister Morrison as a way of making midnight leadership spills 
harder in Australia of uh, increasing the transaction cost or disincentivizing people who might otherwise be inclined to spill or roll a party leader. We saw in 2010 in Australia that happened in a matter of about, what, 12 hours or so when uh, Julia Gillard replaced Kevin Rudd. And uh, Scott Morrison's reaction to the various spills in the Liberal Party over the years was also to do this. Um, so, so you can see the rationale for it, I think, but it is creating some uh, perhaps unintended consequences in, in the UK at the moment. Would you like to give a prediction? Who will be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom? Well, it's a dangerous business. Let me give it a, a procedural prediction. So, so what do we know about the process as of Friday lunchtime? We know that uh, there will need to be about 100 nominations, I think, in order to, to be shortlisted or to be a nominee. Uh, nominations coming from members of parliament and that there will be a vote early next week that will narrow it down to two, uh, a minimum, a maximum of two candidates, and that between them there will then be an indicative vote among the members of parliament. I think a lot of those structures are in place to encourage the Tory members of parliament to reduce the number of candidates down to one, such that there will be no need for that vote. So your prediction is that there will only be one person left standing yeah, I mean, it's a, mugs, it's a mugs game to make predictions given what's happened in the UK this week. But, uh, but that's the case. And I think... It'll and we'll be, see whether you're right or wrong next week. We'll see whether I'm right or wrong. On this show. And we'll see whether we start and end the podcast season with Boris Johnson as Prime, <laughs> Prime Minister. But I think the, the final point, and we should finish mm. on this before the break, is that uh, uh, King Charles has been, has been waiting 70 plus years to resolve a constitutional crisis and maybe he's just itching at the chance. His it, time has come. His time has come. Uh, well, let's take the break there, Joshua, and we'll come back after the break to think about torture and terror. Okay, welcome back. We are thinking in the second half of today's show about torture and terror, and in doing so, we really we are picking up on a similar theme from the first half of the show, Joshua. The first half of the show considered uh, one uh, slightly unconstitutional way in which Australia had tried to deal with the issue of so-called foreign fighters or suspected terrorists. And in the second half in legal theory, we're also thinking about dealing with and, and responding to terrorism and how law responds to terrorism and how law legal responses to terrorism can distort and thwart and taint uh law more generally and public law more generally, constitutional law, human rights law, all these sorts of areas. So we certainly saw some, some strong language from Justice Stewart, for example, to flash back to Alexander for, for a moment, um, speaking about terrorism. He, he said, among other things, um, describing people involved in these sorts of cases, those who fundamentally loathe this country and all that it stands for, those people are not victims who require the protection of their former country. Rather, they are in substance and as a matter of practical effect, repudiators of Australia. So some robust language from, from Justice Stewart there. Um, what did you talk about in, in legal theory this week? Was it, was it a, is it a post 9-11 conversation? That you it's had? very much a post 9-11 conversation. I mean, citizenship stripping in the Alexander case was a response to terror, our response to terror, the Australian response to terror. In the US, the response to terror has occasionally taken on a turn to torture. Right? So we are now being forced to grapple with the relationship between torture and terror. 
in the context of 9-11, how did an act of terror triggered torture as a response? And growing up, 9-11 was the biggest uh, political news of my entire high school years. It was on the news almost every day, right? For months and years on end, 9-11 and its aftermath. Do you remember what were you doing when you first heard the news that the Twin Towers have fallen? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was a little older than I am a little older than you. So I was at, I was at university, and I um, was in fact watching an episode on free to air TV of The West Wing, the great U.S. political drama of the turn of the century. And during the ad breaks in that U.S. political drama, so the news news alert started breaking, and then the, the you must be confused whether you're still watching the was, drama or is this reality? It was very surreal and very strange, um, and. Uh, yeah, and I, th- I, th- I have the distinct memory of being at the University of Queensland the next day on campus and uh, low over Brisbane, uh, the Air Force or the Army flew a group of three or four military helicopters very low and very slow across Brisbane, almost in a, in a show of reassurance of some sort, or, or it, was, it was quite eerie at the time. Were you reassured? <laughs> I found it strange in many respects, but I think those, it is hard, I think, to convey to some of our, our younger listeners perhaps the, the impact of that. I mean, it, it, I think the, the political uh, uh, power of 9-11 in, in the political discourse has, has no doubt faded in recent years, and, and certainly things like the pandemic have become an all-consuming news story of the sort that mm. you've described in more recent years. But uh, it was omnipresent, and it really just shaped almost every public law, human rights law, legal theory debate for quite a long time there. Yeah, so we might think about how the Americans responded uh, then. How did they end up with torture, if not torturing directly, very close to engaging in acts of torture. Congress has the power to declare war in the American Constitution. Once war has been declared, Congress doesn't command war efforts. The president is the commander-in-chief. And here is one constitutional slash public law question. Once war has been declared by Congress, does the president's commander-in-chief power expand to deal with the war efforts? This is a public law question. I mean, as a public lawyer, what do you think the right doctrinal public law answer is? Well, crucially, it's an American constitutional law question, isn't it? And there we need to bear in mind that the the American executive government is not responsible to Congress in the way that the, the Prime Minister would be in a in a Westminster system like our own. And so what you, as I, you understand some of this US law better than I do, Joshua, but as I understand it, what you then get are uh, uh, sort of what are sometimes described as co-equal branches of government mm. in the US and a more genuine, genuine contest, a turf war between the legislature and the executive, particularly relevant, not only, but particularly relevant when they're controlled by different parties. In Australia, that's often different because of our system of responsible government. Yeah, but Congress can't command the army. No. Congress can only declare war. And it would be really messy to have Congress command anything in America these days. Well, but, but even not just these days. It goes to an institutional design point, doesn't it? It goes to, um, uh, what's the what's the... Athenian philosophy, um, give the flutes to the best flute players. It, it says that, uh, that, that when you are needing to make decisions on the fly um, on something like an emergency or military command, you want a single 
voice, you want a single decision-making process supported by a relevant set of advisors, you don't want 435 people or 100 people each having their say. Yeah. I would phrase it even stronger. It has to be one person. The commander-in-chief must be a single individual. There must be one will reposed in one person. Yeah. And Congress is not one person. It's an assembly yeah. of many, many persons. Which is, which is good for many other things, right? You but not for commanding war effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, if war has been declared by Congress, President, Commander-in-Chief, what role is there for the Supreme Court? Now, the Supreme Court is a bench of nine people. If you allow the Supreme Court to intervene and direct war efforts, that defeats the whole point of having the President as Commander-in-Chief, having one person direct war efforts. And what do judges know? about fighting wars. Yeah, after all, only lawyers. You, you would have fit, fitted in well in the Bush administration, Joshua. I mean, I mean, surely the response there is, you say, what's the point of, of, uh, of this? But it, or you say it undermines the whole point of having commander-in-chief. If, if the commander-in-chief in a constitutional democracy is able to fight a war in a manner that is inconsistent with that constitutional democracy's constitutional commitments and rights and maybe even its international commitments, then, uh, then you know, what, what's the point of it all in the first place? So, so the role of the Supreme Court surely is not to second guess every tactical decision that is made by a commander in chief or his or her military, but to ensure that the, the overall broad strokes of the response are consistent with and the, the actions of the government are consistent with constitutional commitments, Bill of Rights and so on. Now, this then brings us to the question of torture because the question of torture was the biggest one of the biggest legal questions in terms of the war efforts. And, and as some listeners will know, but some won't, there are a series of cases going through the US courts and including the US Supreme Courts over the early 2000s uh, and, and beyond about US responses to terror through, for example, its actions in Guantanamo Bay, its actions in other places around the world and uh, how what the US had done interacted with the US's domestic and international law commitments, and some, some that didn't go through the courts either, but they were the subject of considerable political controversy. So let's, one way to approach this puzzle is to think about what's the particular problem with torture. Torture is absolutely prohibited, in, even in America, but let me give you the context. We are dealing with a state that allows capital punishment and the Supreme Court has ruled that capital punishment execution is both legal and constitutional in states that have it. At least in certain circumstances. In certain circumstances, or in, by certain means. Yep. The state can conscript in Australia as well as in the US. And let me just remind our listeners what conscription is. The state can require citizens, an individual, to kill and be killed in the defense of the state. If we already allow conscription and the death penalty, why is torture absolutely prohibited? What, what makes torture uniquely objectionable in a way that makes it even worse than war, conscription in the, in the cause of war, and makes it even worse than the death penalty? Let's just spell out here, because when, when we say torture is absolutely banned, or it's a it's an absolute prohibition. What I hear, let me check that I, we hear the same thing. What I hear is that when uh, an act of torture is established, 
the government cannot come before a court or any other forum and say, yes, we tortured this person, but we had a really good reason, like national security, or yes, we tortured this person, but there was a compelling need to do it because he or she was the only person who knew where the car bomb was and we needed to torture them to get that information. We had a really good reason. Please let us off. It's compliant with the law. This is right. In no circumstances, in no circumstances could the state ever torture, even if we know for a fact that this person knows where the ticking time bomb is, the state cannot torture. And, and this is something, I'll just do a shameless plug here, Joshua, in my, uh, in my master's course on international comparative human rights law, we spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of torture and absolute rights compared to other sorts of rights. So uh, please sign up now. <laughs> um, but, but so I suppose the question is, you're asking us is, is there something that is essentially different about the prohibition on torture to, for example, um, the right to life. The right to life in the United States and even under many international and regional human rights documents, the right to life can be deprived of people, at least in some circumstances, limited as they may be. Torture, not so much. It, can, it is an absolute prohibition. Yeah. So the torture memos, the so-called torture memos that uh, members of the Bush administration issued, they don't question the absolute prohibition on torture, they argue, but they argue that what they were doing, these so-called enhanced interrogation techniques don't amount to torture, which is slightly different from saying that we can torture, but we have a justification here, right? They accept the absolute prohibition. Yeah, my, uh, my doctoral supervisor, Andrew Ashworth, a uh, great English lawyer and professor, wrote a piece about what he called levels of contestability. Go with me here, which right. is that when you're having an argument about rights, you can have an argument among different levels. And one of them might be, what is the definition of torture? Another might be, um, what is the definition of freedom of expression? And then a different level would be, sorry, those on the same level, a different level would be, what are the circumstances in which that right can be overridden right. or can be justified? So where you cannot have an argument about justification, where you cannot have an argument about, oh, but we had a really good reason, that means the only space in which you can have the argument, the only level on which you can have the argument is the definitional level. Was it torture in the first place? And I think the Bybee memos are just such, and we'll put a link to them in the show notes, such a classic example of that, of having all the loyally energy and, and legal argument goes into the definitional question, and they produce, an, to my reading, absurdly narrow definition of what torture is. But you've got to do that as if you're the lawyer for the US government who wants to achieve a particular goal because you know that there can be no argument on justification. But we are not public lawyers uh, um, here. Oh, we are not American public lawyers. Yeah. At least we are legal theorists. Let's put on the hat of a legal theorist. And in, as a legal theorist, one might ask, is there really a good reason to have this absolute prohibition on torture, which distorts uh, the legal arguments as you have laid out for us beautifully. We now have to talk about what is torture, what is not torture, when really the main issue is whether we want to do certain things in the course of war. And let's have that debate instead of quibbling over the definition of torture. And, and the reason this is interesting, I think, is because in, in, when you look around the world, domestic, regional, international law, torture does have this, uh, this different status. Uh, and uh, interrogating why could be, it could simply be, I imagine, Joshua, a product of the fact that it has always been treated as differently in positive law, in doctrinal law, in a number of jurisdictions, and that at some point snowballs and achieves a, a, a life of its own, a self-fulfilling um, prophecy. But there seems to be something about... When you, when you try and delve into this and, and read about it, there seems to be something about human dignity 
that torture is an affront to that in the in the writing in the cases that somehow is 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 not affronted by the taking of life through in, at least in some circumstances capital punishment which is a remarkable thing to get our heads around i think you're saying we sh- we should have more trouble getting our heads around them yeah maybe we should leave our listeners hanging <laughs> on that note other than to suggest i think there is something about pain torture's unique link to pain now killing you is fine but keeping you alive while inflicting pain that combination of making you be in pain while alive that is what is sets torture apart from the death penalty for example or even killing and being killed in the battlefield and i think it's possible that that can tie into some notion of of human dignity and it was never it is still never quite clear to me what dignity is in the human rights context or how it works but i think there's something lingering in the background there about human dignity as well yeah so our listeners should reflect on their painful experiences and think about that being protracted for hours and hours on and like a visit to a dentist without anesthetics or a, or a podcast that has gone too, on too long already <laughs> secondary rules we'll be back same time same place next weekend for the very last time this semester so please do remember to click on that link in the show notes to take the survey to tell us what you like about the show and what you'd like to see more of if and when we do season two next week though we'll be talking about the end of law and the end of the world very appropriately and the fraying of cable Today's program was produced not less than 100 miles from Sydney by Jack O'Brien and Tom Farron. Our thanks to the ANU Law School. If you'd like to know more, don't forget to check out today's show notes. Our theme music is by Soul Shifters. If you like this show, please don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We are Josh O'Neill and Ryan Goss. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Josh. See you next week, everyone.